You're listening to Studentaftonpodden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. Tonight, a lecture on political corruption in the United States by Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Lessig. Thanks. It's really wonderful to be back at Lund. Uh, this is my favorite university that didn't give me a job. Um, but you did give me a degree, which I am very proud of, hanging on my wall. And my five-year-old came here, and he was very upset that he wasn't allowed to come back to this lecture. Um, but I'm hopeful that uh, I can bring everybody back again, because if you need me to come back, I'm totally okay with coming back. That's, that's really fine. Um, okay, what I want to do is introduce an idea. And I want you to imagine that you climbed onto some drone and left Lund and flew to a place 8,700 kilometers away, El Paso, Texas. And then you climbed into your time machine and you went back 90 years in El Paso, Texas. And in old El Paso, Texas, you then moved yourself to the center of the city. And if you did that, there's a chance you would meet an extraordinary man named Lawrence Nixon. Now, Nixon was a physician. He was born in the late 19th century. Uh, And he moved to El Paso in 1910. And every two years between 1910 and 1922... Lawrence Nixon walked down to his polling place, paid his poll tax, and voted. But in 1924, he tried to do the same thing. And when he arrived at the polling place and paid his poll tax, he was told by the Democratic Party officials, Dr. Nixon, you know you're not permitted to vote. And Nixon said, I know I can't, but I've got to try. Now, he couldn't because in 1923, Texas had, by law, enacted something called the all-white primary, a law which said that in the Democratic primary, only whites were allowed to vote. So the system of democracy, quote-unquote, in Texas was that there was a general election where any citizen had the right to vote, but in the Democratic primary, which was the dominant party in Texas, only whites could vote, and you had to be able to run in the general election by clearing the white primary. So a two-stage election with a filter in the middle, which excluded a significant portion of Texas's population, about 15% at the time, from this critical first step of electing representatives, with the consequence, obviously, that Texas produced a democracy responsive to whites only. Okay, what Texas did wasn't particularly Texan. Instead, it's a trick, a pretty well-known trick, to defeat democracy. The Tammany Hall leader, inspiration for much of what corruption in America is, Boss Tweed, used to say, quote, I don't care who does the electing as long as I get to do the nominating. Now, this conception of democracy we could call Tweedism. And by Tweedism, I mean any two-stage process where a qualified group, the Tweeds, get to do the nominating, the effective nominating, and the rest of the public gets to do the electing with a filter standing in the middle. 
Once you see democracy like this, you can see tweetism everywhere. Think about the protests that broke out in Hong Kong last summer. All across the city, there was an extraordinary outpouring of anger because of a law which the Chinese government had proposed that Hong Kong adopt to regulate the selection of their chief executive. So the law said the ultimate aim is the selection of a chief executive by universal suffrage upon nomination by a broadly representative nominating committee in accordance with democratic procedures, a nominating process, which would have 1,200 Hong Kong citizens sitting on that committee which means out of a population of about 7 million is about 0.02% of Hong Kong. Now that's a tiny, tiny number. It's like this number right there, really small. If you imagine a single person, 0.02% looks something like this. It's one out of every 5,000 citizens. A tiny, tiny proportion who had the right to nominate the candidates who get to run in the general election. That structure produced a strike because as people perceived the nominating committee, it was, they thought, a biased filter, as was protested. The 1,200 were dominated by a pro-Beijing business and political elite. As Martin Lee, the chairman of the Hong Kong Democratic Party, put it, we want genuine universal suffrage, not democracy with Chinese characteristics. And this structure, they thought, was not democracy, because how could it be democracy when 0.02% get to qualify the candidates who get to run in the election? Okay, it's easy to say that talking about Hong Kong. But the uncomfortable fact is when we start thinking about the way democracy in America works. In America, we take it for granted that campaigns will be privately funded. But what you should recognize is that process of funding is its own contest. It's its own primary. Because members of Congress and candidates for Congress spend anywhere between 30 and 70 percent of their time raising money to get back to Congress or to get their party back into power, dialing for dollars, calling people across the country to raise the money they need. And as they do that, through a process of osmosis, they learn what works. They develop a sixth sense, a constant awareness about how what they do will affect their ability to raise money. They become, in the words of the X-Files, shape-shifters as they constantly adjust their views in light of what they know will help them to raise money, not in issues 1 to 10, but in issues 11 to 1,000. Leslie Byrne, a Democrat from Virginia, describes that when she went to Congress, she was told by a colleague, quote, always lean to the green. And then to clarify, she went on, you know, he was not an environmentalist. This image, this practice, is the way we should understand Congress. B.F. Skinner gave us this conception of the Skinner box, where any stupid animal could learn which buttons it had to push to get the sustenance it needs. We need to recognize this is a picture of the life of Congress. As members of Congress learn which buttons they need to push to get the sustenance they need to get back into power or get their party back into the majority. This is a primary, too. It's a money primary. Not a white primary, but a green primary. It is one stage in a multi-stage process in an election the green primary, which qualifies candidates to be able to run in the general election. Now, the filter in that green primary is biased, too. 
And it's biased because of who the funders of those campaigns are, the funders. In 2014, which was an off-year election, meaning we elected only members of Congress, there were about 5.4 million Americans who gave even a dollar to any congressional campaign, which means about 1.7% of America. But the top 100 contributors gave as much as the bottom 4.75 million contributors. Okay, so that 100 are the biggest funders. But what we should think about is, who are the relevant funders? Who are the funders who give enough such that their views really matter to candidates for Congress or members of Congress because they're very keen to make sure they haven't alienated those people? So what amount do you have to give to become a relevant funder, relevant to the candidate? Well, in 2014, if you think about the people who gave the maximum amount they were allowed to give to one candidate, that's $2,600 the maximum amount you can give directly to a candidate. In 2014, about 0.04% of America gave the maximum amount in one election cycle. That's about 122,000 Americans, which is about the same number of people as are named Lester in the United States, which is why I called the United States Lesterland in my TED Talk. A tiny, tiny number. Or think of the people who gave $10,000, meaning to more than one candidate in aggregate, $10,000 or more. That's about 0.008%, or 26,000 Americans, which is about the same number of people as are named Sheldon in the United States. Or think about the people who dominated in the super PAC contribution market. Super PACs are independent political action committees that can take unlimited contributions, contributions of any size. In 2014, 100 Americans gave 70% of the money that was spent by super PACs. 100 Americans, about the same number of people as named Adolf in the United States. So whether it's Lester Land or Sheldon City or Adolfia, the point is a tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% dominate this first stage. Okay, now, here's a particular statistic that was a surprise, but not too surprising to notice in this election cycle. Think about the number of people who gave the maximum amount you can give to any candidate in the full cycle. So we have primaries and elections. You're allowed to give any one candidate the maximum of $5,200. If you thought that was the line that made you a relevant funder, if you thought giving that amount made it so you would be on the radar screen of the candidates, it turns out there was 57,854 Americans who gave $5,200 or more. That turns out to be 0.02%, 0.02%. You remember that number, right? That's the number of people who nominated in the Hong Kong system. That's the number of people. If that number is what you think is the relevant line, who are the nominators in the American system too? A tiny, tiny fraction. We could say a Chinese fraction dominates this first stage. And the consequence of that is a democracy responsive to the funders only. Last fall, there was a study published at Princeton, and I'm not allowed to talk about Princeton studies, so I'll put that off the stage really quickly, by Martin Gillens and Ben Page. The largest empirical study of actual policy decisions taken by our government over the last 40 years, relating those policy decisions, the actual changes the government made, 
to the attitudes of the economic elite, organized business interests, and the average voter. And so what that study found was, with respect to the economic elite, as the percentage who support a policy goes up from 0% to 100%, the probability of that policy being enacted went up as well. Intuitively, that makes sense. The more who support something, the more likely it is it gets enacted. And there's a similar graph for organized interest groups. The more the interest groups support something, the more likely that thing gets passed. Okay, here's the graph for the average citizen. It is a flat line, flat line. What that means is that regardless of the percentage of average voters who support something, it doesn't change the probability that that idea will get enacted, as they put it in English. When the preferences of economic elites and the stands of organized interest groups are controlled for, the preferences of the average American appear to have only a minuscule, near-zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. And the consequence of that was described in a really dramatic way by Bard Professor Pavlina Chernova. This is a, a graph that tries to represent the distribution of average income growth during recoveries from the period of the uh, late 1940s through the present. So in the first period, the blue graph represents the percentage of income going to the bottom 90% of Americans, and the red graph shows you the percentage of income going to the top 10%. So in this first case, 80% of the income went to the bottom 90%, and 20% of the income went to the top 10%. So here's how this graph goes over time. In the latest recovery, the top 10% got more than 100% of the value of the increase in average income growth. And as this incredible book by Jacob Hacker and, and Paul Pearson describe, the reason for that change, the reason this shift in value of income changes so dramatically, is tied directly to changes in government policy, changes in how income gets taxed or how benefits are distributed. And those changes in government policy, we need to understand, are because of the way we fund campaigns. This is the consequence of tweedism in America, such that we should recognize we have a very clear picture of America today. It goes something like this. This is... You know, this is kind of what the average American looks like, unfortunately. Um, we the citizens, there's this bus driver. Now notice the dynamic of this bus driver's life, discovering that the steering wheel has been removed from the bus. This is the dynamic that these data are describing. The most basic function of a democracy, of a representative democracy, of what our framers would have called a republic, have been lost. Now... It's popular and well-funded for governments, especially Western governments, to talk about corruption as a significant problem that nations around the world struggle with. And by corruption, what they typically mean is crime, bribery or extortion, or quid pro quos in exchange for influence or favors. Bad stuff, really bad stuff. The sort of stuff that happens in the third world, which is why Transparency International, when you see their graph of where the corrupt nations are, 
most of the world looks red or some very dark red, but the yellow nations, the happy nations, the nations where the perception of corruptions are low, are essentially the United States and Canada and Australia and much of Europe. Okay, this way of thinking about corruption is very convenient, very convenient for us Western nations. Because, of course, I don't mean to deny that quid pro quo corruption is bad, and I don't mean to suggest that Western nations have radical amounts of unreported quid pro quo corruption. But quid pro quo corruption is not the only corruption. And indeed, in the developed world, it's not even the worst form of corruption. Because corruption, properly understood, can be predicated of different objects, meaning we can use it to describe different kinds of objects. It can be predicated of different things. So, we can say corruption is predicated of an individual, and it's different to say that from corruption is predicated of an entity or an institution, and it's institution that I mean in my title, I, corruption, institutional corruption. Those are different conceptions of corruption. So if I say Richard Nixon was corrupt, what I mean by that is the individual Richard Nixon traded political influence for money. And that statement is fundamentally different from the 18th century British Parliament was corrupt. Because when theorists of the British Parliament said the Parliament was corrupt, they were not saying that the Parliament was filled with people taking bribes. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. What they were saying is because the king had a special influence over the British Parliament, it was a corrupted institution from the conception of a Parliament that should be representing the people. So the corruption of an entity is not just the sum of the corruption of individuals within that entity. You can have a corrupt entity even if there are no corrupt individuals within that entity. And you can have a non-corrupt entity, even if there are lots of corrupt individuals inside that entity. And this is because corruption, entity corruption, is talking about the system. It's talking about deviation within the system, deviation from its design or its plan. So let's take a very pedestrian example. Imagine a house with two apartments, each apartment has a, th uh, a thermostat, and the thermostat is connected to an air conditioning unit. And the people living in the top have a very different desire for air conditioning from people living in the bottom. But then imagine, because of some electrical problem, the wires get crossed. So that signals from the top floor about when to air condition or not get affected by what's going on on the bottom floor so that it's not just the temperature of the top floor. So in this system, we can say the cooling system is corrupted in the sense that there is a wrong dependency, the dependency on the wrong thermostat, instead of an exclusive dependency, an exclusive dependency on what's going on in the top floor, there's conflicting dependence. It's sometimes going off, sometimes going on, depending on two floors rather than one. And that change in the way we can speak of it and the way classical people used the term corruption. That change is a corruption. Now that change, that conception of corruption, is how we can understand the corruption of the United States Congress. 
The framers of our Constitution gave us what they called a republic. But by a republic, they meant a representative democracy. But they didn't, therefore, mean to create a pure democracy. Our republic was a very complicated, think of it as kind of a Swiss watch version of a constitutional democracy. Different checks and balances to limit the demo democratic power of the people, but to balance it, to make it respect the other interests that the framers thought a democracy uh, needed to respect. So within that system, there were different departments. And each of those departments had an intended dependence. So the judiciary was meant to be dependent on the law. Decisions of the independent judiciary were to track what the law required. The Senate originally didn't elect senators, they were picked by the states. And that was because the framers thought the Senate needed to be dependent on the states so that it would represent the interests of the states in our political system. But Congress, the House of Representatives, as the Federalist Papers described, was to be a department which would be dependent on the people alone. So their plan was this department would have an exclusive dependence, a dependence on the people. And to be clear, Madison in Federalist 57 defined the people. And he said the people are, quote, not the rich more than the poor not the rich more than the poor. Now against that background, we can re-describe what tweedism is. Tweedism is an added and extra dependence built into the system, the dependence on the tweeds. And it's conceptually possible that the additional dependence conflicts with the intended dependence of the system. And my view is the additional dependence that the tweeds have provided in the United States certainly conflicts with the conception that Madison had of a government dependent on the people alone, where the people means not the rich more than the poor. The system we have right now is not not the rich more than the poor. The system we have right now is the rich having more power than the poor. This is a corruption of the design of the original American Republic. And if corruption is properly understood, then we should take a map like this from Transparency International and we should re-describe the United States. Because in the important sense of corruption, the United States is corrupt. And the consequences of that corruption are, in my view, much more significant than the corruptions of trivial quid pro quo corruption inside of a mature democracy. It is a different corruption, often just as bad, sometimes worse than the corruption of quid pro quo. Okay, but if you go to the United States, the conventional wisdom, this is kind of a cute graphic, you see this? So this is like a convention sticker, it says wisdom. So conventional wisdom, this is girl blogger, put this up, but okay. The conventional wisdom in the United States is that people don't care about the corruption. Politico wrote an article quoting a Republican consultant to say, quote, it's a zero issue. No one cares. They shrug. They already believe that all politicians are corrupt assholes. It's baked in the cake. They get it. But I think there's a deep confusion in that view. We did a poll at the end of 2013. We asked, how important is it to you that the influence of money in politics be reduced? 96% of Americans said it was important to reduce the influence of money in politics. But then we asked, how likely is it that the influence of money in politics will be reduced? And we found 91% said it was not likely. 
So you put these numbers together, you begin to understand the dynamic of American politics. You know, look, at least 96% of us wish we could fly like Superman, but because 91% of us know we can't, we don't leap off tall buildings regularly, we accept our mortal state, and we just get on with life. And so our apathy is not a reflection of our desire, our apathy is resignation, just like people in Egypt under Mubarak. It's not that they loved Mubarak, but just what were they going to do about it? And in the United States, we have modified what Ben Franklin used to say. Franklin used to say, nothing is certain but death and taxes, and we have added, and a corrupt government. But what follows from this, if this is true, is that if you can show people it's in fact possible to change this corruption, then you will motivate them to care. And the truth is, as hard as this is to believe, it is, it is possible. As my students like to say, it is totally possible. Totally possible. We could solve 90% of this problem with a single statute, a statute that would change how campaigns are funded. So, for example, you could think of a statute establishing traditional public funding. We have that in theory for presidential candidates. Every president between Nixon and Obama was elected to the office on the public's dime, using public money. And nobody benefited more from that system than Ronald Reagan, who ran three national campaigns using public money to fund his election. And most strikingly, when Ronald Reagan ran for re-election, he attended eight fundraisers. But when Barack Obama ran for re-election, of course, after he had given up public funding and said he would not take money from the government, only raise his money privately, Ronald Reagan attended eight. Barack Obama attended 220 fundraisers before his 2012 re-election. Now, you might ask, how does the most powerful man in the world do his job while attending 220 fundraisers, without even thinking about the kinds of people he is meeting again and again and again at those 220 fundraisers. So public funding could take care of this problem overnight. But Americans don't like the kind of top-down public funding, so there are alternatives. Think about vouchers. Imagine every American got a rebate of their taxes in the form of a voucher. Think of it like a Starbucks card for democracy, right? And candidates can take those vouchers if they agree to fund their campaigns with vouchers only and maybe limited contributions in addition, maybe up to $100. So $50 a voter would be $7 billion. The total amount raised and spent by congressional candidates in 2014 was about $1.5 billion. So this is many times more than the amount we're spending right now. It's real money. But the critical point is it's money from the many, many, not money from the point zero two. Or finally, think about a Democratic idea. Vouchers are pushed by Republicans. Democrats push the idea of matching funds. So John Sarbanes, a congressman from Maryland, has a proposal where small contributions, like $100, could be matched up to 9 to 1. So $100 would be worth $1,000 to a campaign, making it possible, again, for candidates to raise money from the many, many, not from the point zero two. The point is, all three of these statutes would change what matters to the candidates. What would matter would be the votes and not the unequal contributions of money, reasserting a fundamental principle, equal votes for equal citizens. This is a simple statute that is perfectly constitutional, even under the Supreme Court's radical doctrines 
about the First Amendment. So why don't we have it in America right now? Well, one of my favorite teachers in this subject is a congressman named Jim Cooper, who went to Congress first in about 1982. He was elected in 82. He's a Democrat from Tennessee. And when he was explaining to me the problem of Congress, he said, you need to understand, Congress has become a kind of farm league for K Street, K Street where the lobbyists live. And what he means by that is members and staffers and bureaucrats have an increasingly common business model, a business model focused on their life after government, their life as lobbyists. 50% of the Senate, according to a study by Public Citizen, between 1998 and 2004 left to become lobbyists, 42% of the House, and according to United Republic, who tracked the salary increase for people who left Congress to go to the House, the average salary increase in the last cycle was 1,452%. So you have a system where everyone depends on the system surviving for their future, for their income, for their kids to go to college, a system that makes lobbying so incredibly profitable because the lobbyists are serving a dependence that the congressmen have and the congressmen are serving a dependence the lobbyists have. The lobbyists need a Congress responsive to them, therefore they can sell their services very, very profitably. And Congress needs people to help them raise money, so lobbyists channel money to the congressmen. Lobbying becomes more than information. It feeds the dependence. And so you could rightly look at this system and say, how could we ever expect that they would change this? Well, the truth is, they won't change that. On their own, they would have no motive to change that. But I think that we, meaning we who are not politicians or politician wannabes, can. And the strategy to changing it depends on an analytic and an emotion. The analytic is what I've just given you a way of understanding how this is corruption. This improper dependence on the funders corrupts the idea of a government dependent on the people alone. That's the analytic. But the most important part is the emotion. What would motivate people to step up and do something about it? And that emotion requires that we identify an ideal and the victim. And the ideal, I think, is to get people to recognize the importance, the central importance of equality in a democracy and to get them to see that this is inequality. It's completely obvious to every American today, even though for a hundred years after the amendment granting African Americans the right to vote, it was not obvious, but it's completely obvious to every American today that what Texas did in 1923 was unequal. It created a system of inequality. And what we need to do is to get Americans to recognize that a system where 0.02% are the relevant funders in the first critical stage of an election is also a violation of equality. That this is a fight for equality first. And in America today, it is an appropriate time to see this as a fight because it's the 50th anniversary of the most important battle that we had in the 20th century for a struggle for equality. It was 50 years ago and 15 days when a man named Jimmy Lee Jackson was murdered in Marion, Alabama. Jackson was 
walking the streets of Marion, trying to register people to vote. Because at the time, Alabama had a voter participation among African Americans of just 1%. 1% of blacks in Alabama were registered to vote. And the reason 1% was registered was that if you were black and you tried to register, you had to answer questions given to you by the registrar. Quizzes that only blacks had to answer because whites were grandfathered into the system. So the blacks had to answer questions like, name all 67 county judges in Alabama, or when was Oklahoma admitted to the Union, or my favorite, and I swear to you, this was a question on some of these uh, uh, surveys, how many bubbles are there on a bar of soap? And if you got any of these questions wrong, the registrar had the right not to admit you as a voter, so therefore 1% of blacks were registered to vote, the 1% who had counted the bubbles on a bar of soap. So what Jimmy Lee Jackson was doing was participating with others, fighting for an equal right to vote, a right that was denied to him and other African Americans when he was murdered. And after he was murdered, the civil rights movement in America was terrified that the ugliness of that death would drive people away from the movement. And so they decided they would launch a new effort to change the character, an optimistic, hopeful effort, which James Bevel, who was the director of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, conceived of. And the idea was to launch a march from Selma to Montgomery, a long march, 50-mile march, that would be a moment of celebration as whites and blacks would march together to the capital where they would demand equality for all Americans. But it was 50 years ago and one week when the world saw the consequences of that march, an event called Bloody Sunday, where the blood spilled on that march was spilled across television sets around the world, and most powerfully in the North, where the North finally came to recognize the meaning of that inequality. But that blood had an effect because one week later, 50 years ago yesterday, Lyndon Baines Johnson stood before Congress and declared, I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. This man who was understood by most until he became president as himself a racist, this man made civil rights the central movement of his initial administration, and he succeeded in getting equal rights for African Americans through the Voting Rights Act of 1965. They didn't have the vote, an equal vote, so they walked and they protested and they fought and they died for equality for the dignity of equal citizens, for that ideal. And it's that ideal, I think, we need to see standing behind the emotion that this movement needs. But who is the victim? Because in a strange way, African Americans had an advantage here. They knew they were treated as unequals. They got it not just in voting, but in every sphere of their life, especially in the South, they understood that in the system of equals versus unequals, they were the unequals. There was no ambiguity about that. It was these subtle shades of color that helped them to see that inequality. But we live in the digital age, 
Things are black and white in our age. Things are binary, either or. And the striking fact about most Americans is that they make the equivalence because we can vote, because nothing blocks all of us to vote, we must all be equal. But we are not equal. We, the 99.98%, are the unequals in this story, but we don't even notice it. We certainly don't tell this to ourselves. We certainly would be embarrassed to admit it to democracies around the world. So who is the victim? Well, it's hard to call 99.98% the victim. And the truth is, I think, the critical group to be understood as victims here are those whom Banksy was art making this art for when he painted this on the wall of a Boston building. Those whose dreams have been canceled. And who are they? I think a clue is to remember who started the protests in Hong Kong. Because I hope you remember, the first people to show up were kids, literally even elementary school kids who went to sit on the streets with the students in high school and students in college to protest. And it was only after the adults began to feel guilty that the kids were doing all the protests that everybody else showed up. It was the kids who looked at what China was saying and said, this is not a democracy, this is not the democracy that we want, because they realized that democracy didn't care about them. And it's the same that's true about the victims of the consequence of the American corruption. The victims here are our youth. Because if you think about every important problem that we can't solve, these are problems that don't affect people my age or older, really. I mean, we all talk about the incredible importance of dealing with climate change. But people who are 50 and over will be long gone before the most dramatic consequences from climate change happen. It's the kids who will bear the burden of that. The United States is going through an extraordinary period of debt, literally borrowing money from our children to pay for the life we want today. It is the kids who will pay the consequence of that. We have the most expensive and least effective healthcare system in the world in the United States for comparable democracies. We can't change that system without giving extraordinary gifts to pharmaceutical companies or insurance companies. But I'm going to have healthcare until I die. There's no concern that I have. It is my children. These are not all my children, but okay. My children who bear the burden of that, and an economy which is stagnating in the United States because of a system of crony capitalism favoring incumbents over challengers. It is not us who bear the consequence of that. It is our kids. The victim here is the youth, the people who don't vote, who can't vote, who are so incredibly cynical about the system that they just tune out. They are the victim of this inequality. Okay, so, there's an emotion here. The emotion is the injustice of this inequality, the inequality of its victims. Its victims first, the peoples whose future is denied by the structure of corruption. Them first, and then the rest of us. All of us, except for the 0.02%. Okay, one more thought before I stop. We should recognize that there is a global anti-corruption movement happening around the world. 
from Brazil to Israel to India to Russia to the United States. There is a movement of people who recognize the way their government fails because of what they call corruption. Even though the kind of corruption they complain of is different in these different countries. But what unites this movement is the recognition that the governments so corrupted creates extraordinary inequality within their society. That is what corruption is. And the common failure that we are seeing in democracies around the world is the failure to resist that corruption. Even if it has different causes in these different democracies, we should understand these movements as part of the same movement a movement that demands the respect of equality that equal citizens are entitled to have. Now, the rare exception among this experiment that we call democracy, this experiment that's being practiced in democracies around the world, the rare exception are places that work, places where the democracy works. And you, of course, live in an area of the world we think of as an exception to the way democracy has been corrupted. And that exception isn't explained by culture. There are states in the United States where state governments function perfectly well, perfectly responsive in the way we think of an ideal democracy to be. But the exception is explained by something. And so I think that means that you, too, have a role in this movement against this corruption, this movement for equality. Because you have an incredible opportunity to help us, you help us, us, your friends. You help us by being critical, by calling us on the failure of us to live up to our ideals, to help us see how what we have done is a failure, a failure of democracy because we are the most powerful nation in the world, acting like a drunk grizzly bear, acting like children while ignoring our children. And it's time we act like adults, and it will take adults, adults from mature democracies, democracies that work to bring us around to the ideals which we think we gave birth to. Thank you very much. You're listening to Studentaftonpodden. We will now continue with questions from the audience. Um, why does money equal votes? And do you think this could change with, the, um, with new channels for exposure like the internet? Well, so um, money doesn't technically equal votes. But what I'm saying is that in the process of getting elected, you need to clear the money primary where money is functioning like votes. To be a credible candidate, you need to raise money. So, for example, in this last election cycle, an extraordinarily brilliant woman named Zephyr Teachout, as a Democrat, she ran against, in the Democratic primary, the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo had run for governor on an anti-corruption platform. And when he was elected, he set up an anti-corruption committee And then it was discovered that he was corruptly manipulating the prosecutions of that anti-corruption committee to protect his friends and to attack his enemies. So Zephyr decided to run against him, a professor from Fordham Law School. 
incredibly articulate. She had just finished this amazing book called Corruption in America. Um, and she was on the Democratic ticket, on the primary ticket. But Andrew Cuomo refused to debate her. And you ask, well, why would he refuse debate, to debate this person? It wasn't because she was a woman. It wasn't because she was relatively young. It was because she had $400,000 and he had $30 million. And so everybody in politics realized she's not credible as a candidate, but her credibility had nothing to do with her ideas or her person or her popularity because she got 35% of the vote, even though she only had $40,000 compared to his $30 million. Or in the presidential election in 2012, um, in the Republican primary, the most qualified man in the Republican primary is probably a person you didn't even hear of. His name is Buddy Romer. Buddy Romer was a three-term congressman. He had been the governor of Louisiana, and he had started his own bank. So he was a private sector person, an executive, and a legislator. Nobody had those qualifications. But Buddy decided the single most important issue he wanted to push was the corrupting influence of money. So he said he would take no more than $100 from anybody. So when he tried to get onto the debates, the debate people um, refused him a stay, uh, permission to be on stage with the other, literally 12 other candidates that were running for president. And when he was asked, when he asked why, they said, well, buddy, you need to have 1% national name recognition. And then he got that. And then they said, you need 5% national name recognition. And he got that. And then they said, well, you need to have raised $500,000 in the prior six weeks. And he said, but my whole campaign is about the corrupting influence of money. You can't force me to give up my central platform and enable be a, able to be allowed to debate. And they said, you're just not credible unless you have the money. So the point is, there's nobody directly voting, but in effect, it's producing this election where we only permit the people who are able to attract large amounts of money to be the candidates that we get to vote among. Now, um, will that change? That only changes if we change the way we fund elections. And we could do that. I tried to describe how we could do that. We could do that through a simple statute. States that have done it, like Connecticut adopted it for their local state elections, 78% of the elected representatives opted into small-dollar funded system in the first year. Maine did the same thing, 80% opted into the system. So we could change it like that if we could create the political pressure to force Congress to change it. And that's going to require democratic action. There's nothing else that's going to make that happen. Good evening, Professor Lessig. Um, last year, the American Supreme Court dropped a case uh, called McCutcheon versus the FEC. In that case, the conservative majority essentially said that the kind of corruption that you're fighting is not a bug in the system, but essentially a part of it. It's a system at work. With that in um, review and having the other two branches of government against you, how good of a chance do you think you have of actually pushing through any form of significant reform? Well, first thing, I'm going to change my name to David, and then I'm going to take on the Goliath. That's the obvious solution to this, right? You've heard David and Goliath, right? Um, um, so first, let's be clear about something about the Supreme Court. No, you notice, I think if you've ever heard anybody talk about this issue, the issue they talk about the most is the Supreme Court. So you may have heard of a case called Citizens United, a case that declared that corporations and unions can spend unlimited amounts of money in political campaign, in independent uh, spender, spending in political campaigns. And, uh, and when that happened, everybody thought we would have billions of dollars of corporate money inside of our political system. And so what 
motivates most people who are fighting this issue is the belief that we've got to find a way to reverse the Supreme Court. Um, but, the, but the proposals that I've described, this Supreme Court has repeatedly affirmed as constitutional. They don't address the question of this independent spending. Um, they just change the way candidates raise their money. Because in my view, the real corruption is not in the spending, it is in the fundraising. It's in that Skinner box where candidates are raising their money or trying to dance in ways to get super PACs to spend money that we corrupt the system. Not so much when people are spending the money. And if we address that problem by getting Congress, getting a Congress that would take it up, uh, then I'm convinced, as a constitutional scholar, if you look at the history of American Supreme Court decisions, the kind of crazy Supreme Court decision will eventually find its way back to the norm. So I don't want to push a reform movement focused on fixing the Supreme Court. It'll fix itself. What won't fix itself is Congress. That's why what I'm talking about is how to change a Congress to get them to pass fundamental reform. Um, and, and what's important, the reason why I think it's possible is that increasingly people from both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are recognizing that we just can't govern anymore given the current system. We can't do anything. It's not like you know, certain people win. Nobody wins in this system. And the reason for that is if you've got a small, small number of people who are funding the campaigns, a small fraction of those people have the ability to basically veto any decision the government might want to take. This is what Francis Fukuyama calls the vetoocracy of the United States. So a small number of people can veto anything because the candidates are afraid of alienating those people because those people are the central funders. Now, it would be one thing if the interests of those tiny, tiny fraction were unified. You know, if this were an aristocracy and you kind of imagine that there was a unified interest that they were pushing. But the problem with our system is that these interests are, are in some sense random. So they veto in every direction. They veto right-wing changes, they veto left-wing changes. So we have no ability to govern anymore, and people on the right and the left are slowly recognizing that. And what we're slowly seeing being built is a movement that's trying to push to make sure that, in fact, Congress changes. Now, is it likely we win? You know, uh, God's honest truth, it's extraordinarily difficult to imagine us winning. Really hard. And, of course, great democracies have failed before, and that's the most likely outcome of this struggle uh, because there's an enormous amount of money on the side of the status quo and there's not even recognition enough on the side of the opponents. Um, but when you're like me and you believe this is the most important issue to make possible democracy, you know, whether it's possible or not is not really relevant. You know, I, Americans talk this way. They say things like, I love my country. It's kind of funny, that statement, but I'm going to say it. I love my country. Even liberals love their country, and I'm a liberal. Um, but when you love something, what that means is that the odds don't matter. I just see this as the most important threat to this thing I love. Then that's what I'm going to do everything I possibly can to try to take up and fix. And I think there'll be people who say it's impossible, it's impossible, it's impossible. Um, but I'm hopeful that there will be a moment when what seemed impossible seems obvious and then, then we win. 
Thank you for a very entertaining talk. Um, what do you think is the biggest winners? When you say there's a lot of losers, what are the specific winners? Is there specific corporations or a set of corporations? Is there specific individuals that you can see are pushing for this? Yeah, there are particular... Um, you mean, I'm just make sure one important question about your question. So you mean who are the particular winners under the current system? Yeah. So you can look at particular issues and show who wins on those issues. So for example, when Barack Obama was trying to pass Obamacare, the basic architecture of that system was everybody had to have insurance, mandated insurance, um, and the government would then um, guarantee some basic level of social insurance for healthcare. But in getting that passed, Barack Obama was confronted with two very powerful special interest groups. First, the insurance companies, and second, the pharmaceutical companies. So the insurance companies um, were happy with a law that mandated everybody buy insurance. You know, it's a good way to have a market, that it's a crime if you don't buy your product. But the idea of the reformers was that the government should create its own insurance policy to compete with the private insurance, to keep them honest. That was called the public option. The insurance company said, well, if you um, pass the public option, we'll spend $40 million to defeat Democrats, and you will lose control of Congress. So the public option was dropped. And then the pharmaceutical companies, um, of course, were going to have this enormous benefit of the government funding the purchase of all sorts of drugs that otherwise wouldn't be purchased. And the government wanted to be able to buy those drugs wholesale. You know, we already gave the pharmaceutical companies a monopoly through their patents, but we at least wanted to take advantage of the market power of buying a lot of drugs at the same time to be able to buy them wholesale. Pharmaceutical companies said, we'll spend $60 million defeating Democrats unless you put into the law that the government is not allowed to buy drugs at a discount. They can only pay retail prices for the drugs. And you know drugs in America are already insanely expensive. And the Obama administration put that in too because otherwise they would not be able to hold control of Congress. So this reform is only reform once we pay off the special interest, and of course the cost of paying off that special interest is something like $150 billion because of that one law. Or think about, you know, the United States goes around talking about the importance of free trade. Well, we have tariffs on sugar imports in the United States. Those tariffs uh, benefit sugar barons, they're mainly four big barons, sugar barons in the United States, they cost the United States economy $3 billion in higher sugar costs. Sugar is extremely expensive in the United States. Drives American sugar consumption towards poison sugar, high fructose corn syrup, because that's the competitive um, uh, sub sweet substitute. Um, and it's partly competitive because the government subsidizes wheat production in the United States. Um, so the producers of wheat win, the producers of sugar win, the only people who don't win are our kids who eat an incredibly unhealthy diet filled with all this terrible sweet stuff. Again, you can point to them as winners and everybody else as losers. And the most generic category of people who win are rich people and their taxes. You know, so the United States has continually cut the rate of taxes for the richest in America. And the most amazing category is the taxes for hedge fund uh, owners. Hedge fund owners, of course, are the richest people, you know, incredible billionaires, but the taxes on hedge fund income, because of a trick in the way it's counted, on average are lower than the taxes of a middle uh, class worker. So 
Warren Buffett, who is a hedge fund billionaire, has been a strong opponent of this special gift to hedge fund billionaires. He came out and he said he pays less taxes as a percentage than his secretary does because of this special tax treatment, special tax treatment given to hedge fund billionaires because Congress knows that if it takes it away, hedge fund billionaires aren't so interested in being the funders of these campaigns. So you can point to the general people who benefit, but I think that the, the point that people are beginning to recognize is even if I benefit in one area, I'm losing in 40 other areas. So to have a country that no longer has public schools that are worth sending your kids to, or no longer has bridges that will not fall down, or no longer can afford to make sure that um, it takes care of pollution concerns in the way that we in the 70s thought we would commit ourselves to, is a country that is less healthy, less prosperous, less of a country you would want to have anything to do with. People who come to other countries and recognize that in America are startled to recognize you know, that there's such a thing as public transport that works in parts of the world. Um, uh, and, and I think that slowly as people are recognizing that, it creates the conditions for this moment when uh, you know, the giant wakes up and uh, reasserts some control to, to fix what is this corrupted system. You have been speaking a lot of uh, what motivates the people, so I'm uh, curious what motivates you. What motivates me, yeah. So, how many people have heard of a kid named Aaron Swartz? Okay, that's an extraordinary fact in itself, but um, so Aaron was uh, this young internet uh, social political activist who invented all sorts of amazing things that you live on in the context of the internet, was committed to free culture and open access to knowledge, was arrested um, and charged with uh, downloading too many academic articles which they thought he was going to make freely available to the rest of the world. God forbid that would happen. Um, um, and he was threatened with uh, 30 years in jail. He spent two years fighting his prosecution. A million dollars of his resources gone and uh, uh, at the age of 26 killed himself. So Aaron was like a son to me. I'd known him for uh, 12 of his last years. He was the architect of the technical infrastructure of Creative Commons. And in 2006, he came to visit me in uh, Berlin. I was spending the year in Berlin, finishing my last book on copyright and the internet. And uh, uh, he said to me, why do you think you're ever going to make any progress on these issues? Sensible copyright policy, net neutrality, the issues that I was writing about, so long as we have this corrupted system. And I said to him, uh, you know, Aaron, it's not my field. And he said, as an academic? I said, yeah, as an academic, it's not my field. And he said, okay, but as a citizen, is it your field as a citizen? Uh, and I had no answer for him. And uh, at that point, I decided he was right. And I told him, okay, fine, I'm going to give up the work I do. And that summer, I announced 
a new policy. I said every 10 years I was going to throw away all of my intellectual capital and start again, and the new project would be this corruption project. And Aaron and I started a group called Change Congress that fall, and we worked on a whole bunch of projects on this. Um, so he is literally the person who kind of held me to account the way a child looks at a parent and says, explain yourself, and the parent can't lie, just has to do it. But when he killed himself, uh, you know, suicide is, such, suicide is such a cruel act. You can understand why people do it, but it is such a cruel act, and it's cruelty is that everyone who is close spends the rest of their life thinking, what could I have done? And I specifically, you know, I have seven things that are in my head about what we could have done. And uh, so after he died, I had this, I gave this talk at TED like a month later, and I recognized the connection between his death and what I described before. His death was a lesson that I didn't do enough for this person I loved. And my resolution was I was never going to feel that again. I was never going to feel like I hadn't given everything for something I loved. And this country is my love. My kids are my love. My wife is my love. But this country too. So this is... You know, this is no fun, this job. Uh, this is, uh, you know, weeping in front of 400 people is not fun either, but this job is no fun. You know, a law professor at Harvard uh, spends most of his time consulting and getting all sorts of wonderful money, and, you know, it's a great life, supposedly, but, uh, you know, I schlep myself around the world as much as I can to talk about this issue and to try to organize these movements because... I'm not going to be at that place again. Um, I might not win, but when I check out, I will think to myself, I've done everything I possibly could because nothing is more important. Hi. What do you count as positive progress since you started working on this? Yeah, the most important progress is, first of all, the recognition that is clear from the polling. Like when I showed the 96% who believe it important to reduce the influence of money in politics. What that means is we don't have to convince people of the problem. We just have to convince them there's a solution. You know, and that's very different from the other movements that I've been involved with. So, you know, I first became a kind of activist around copyright issues. That happened in October of 1998 when Congress passed the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act, which extended the term of existing copyrights by 20 years. And of course, you know, a copyright's given to create incentives, but the one thing we know about this universe is that incentives are prospective. So even the United States Congress can't get George Gershwin to do anything more. So this made no sense of the theory of what copyright was about, and I, at that point, took up a took up the fight to try to, I felt like a lawyer with a guilty conscience. The law was ruining the potential of copyright and the internet to coexist, and I wanted to do my part to fix it. But when we started that fight, 
The biggest problem is most people didn't get it. They didn't understand what the problem was. Same thing with network neutrality, which also was a fight that we began around that time. Um, people just didn't even understand it. You know, they had this natural sense that Disney owned Mickey Mouse. Why shouldn't they own Mickey Mouse forever? What's the problem in people having copyrights? Um, and it took a long time to produce the world we have right now, where basically there's, I think, a healthy skepticism about the extremism among, you know, at least kids or parents of kids or people who have some connection to the net. Um, and that's progress, but it took 15 years to get to this place. But with this problem, we start with people getting it. And now it's just giving them a sense of hope that there's something you can do. Um, now, the critical step that has to happen is that Republicans begin to talk about this issue. Democrats have talked about it forever. But the problem is you will never get something this fundamental changed if it's viewed in a partisan way. And the Democrats do everything they can to make people think it's only Democrats who care about this issue so that they can attract all the energy around this issue to the Democratic Party, and that's devastating to the potential of us winning. But this year, we have seen two really important Republican leaders begin to take this issue up in a very powerful way. Um, and I think we're beginning to see, especially in New Hampshire, where there's the first presidential primary, um, among Republicans, a really strong uh, taste for forcing this issue into the presidential campaign. And I think if in New Hampshire we can begin to see this issue surface among Republicans, um, then I think that chances of, of doing something in the next four years go up dramatically. So I'm incredibly hopeful about that. Um, and, uh, you know, four years ago, nobody would have expected that. And if, in fact, we see a candidate win New Hampshire who has made this a central issue, then um, I think we have a real shot of passing something substantial in 2017. You talked a little bit about Aaron and the, all the technology he created and we're still living with. Is there any specific technologies that you think are missing today that would help your cause? Yeah. Um, so, I think it's an open question whether the technologies of organizing that the internet creates can be used for um, projects that require some real sacrifice from people. Uh, you know, if you think about, for example, Facebook. In the context of Facebook, what Facebook has recognized, as they've studied this, is that there's an internal censorship that people practice in their messaging on safe face Facebook. Censorship of thinking, should I say this? What will my friends think if I say this? Um, and you can measure that because, for example, around elections, you see all sorts of unfriending happen as people say, you're voting for Bush? Oh my God, I can't believe it. I mean, I have nothing to do with you. So, so that begins to, over time, dampen the space as a space where people are willing to be open and engage in real argument and, de and debate about questions, okay? Which means it becomes harder to imagine how people kind of opt into doing something that's difficult, where something that's difficult means pushing for a kind of really fundamental radical change against the most powerful forces in our democracy. Um, that's why I've thought it's really important to mix the digital with the physical. Uh, when it was going to be the anniversary of Aaron's death, 
Uh, Aaron died on January 11th, 2013. So on January 11th, 2014, it was his anniversary, and I, I resolved I wanted to be as physically miserable on that day as I had been emotionally miserable for the prior year. But I wanted to make that misery something productive. So I posted on my blog the idea that I was going to walk across the state of New Hampshire. So that's 190 miles in January, and New Hampshire is colder than Sweden. Okay. So um, now the reason walking was an important thing to do in New Hampshire is there's an amazing woman named Doris Haddock, Granny D. And Granny D, at the age of, at the age of 88, 1999, at the age of 88, started a walk from Los Angeles to Washington, D.C., 3,200 miles, with a sign on her chest that said, Campaign Finance Reform. She arrived 13 months later, at the age of 90, walking into Washington, hundreds of people were following her, a whole bunch of congressmen who had gotten in their car and driven out to meet her one mile out so they could walk in with her. Um, so she's a kind of folk hero in New Hampshire, this woman who was fighting for this cause 15 years ago. So my idea was, I didn't have as much, enough time to walk across the United States. I didn't have the strength either. Um, but what if we walked across New Hampshire? And as we were walking across New Hampshire, say to people in New Hampshire, you need to make this issue, this corrupting issue, influence of money in politics, the central issue in the 2016 campaign. So I announced that, and I thought, you know, I'd be doing this alone. Um, but in the end, more than 200 people participated in that walk. And then... In July, we did a 16-mile walk, and 500 people participated in that walk. And then this last January, we did another uh, walk. This time, it was four routes converging on the Capitol. And there was more than 500 people participating in that, and 27 million steps taken in that. And this part of the, of the activity, the physical part, putting your body out there, making people see you, I think is an incredibly important part of any social movement. And the, and the challenge then is whether it's going to be possible to link the digital and the physical. Now, I'm optimistic, but I'm not convinced. Um, you know, we've seen these waves of internet-driven um, resistance. Uh, uh, and some of them are great, some of them people have troubles with. I think, you know, Tea Party was originally driven by that same kind of internet energy, stopping of Sopa Pippa. Um, the enacting of the FCC uh, network neutrality rules around the world much more than in the United States. The TPP uh, is a source of enormous organizing around the internet. These are all examples of, I think, how the network is kind of learning how to do it more effectively with each of these rounds. Um, and if that process grows, then I think there's a chance that the concerns I have about this kind of opt-in revolution um, become uh, muted. Um, but I do think we need to recognize that you're not going to change the world with a mouse. It takes more than a mouse click. It's going to take really a willingness to do the sort of things that 50 years ago people did and some died for. The difference is, when we march, nobody was sticking German shepherds on us. Nobody was taking water uh, hoses from fire hoses and spraying us. Nobody was shooting at us. No police officers were disrespectful to us. You know, the fight that we've got is so much easier. <laughs> so much easier. Um, so in some sense, it should be simple to solve. But the reality is that the, the sense of its hopelessness is the biggest challenge that we've got to overcome.
Good evening, uh, Professor Lessig. Uh, when we see these different people in a couple of years now, like you mentioned, Aaron Schwartz, we have Bradley Manning, Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, Peter Sunde, and the people from Sweden in Pirate Bay, uh, they are sort of interconnected around some kind of situation here. Do you feel with that amount of uh, vocal people that uh, does the political system react timely enough? Or will it take 50 years before the history books will have some review of these men? Yeah, um, I mean, one of the, a related problem, but it's not the same problem that we have in the United States is, uh, you know, we're still living in this kind of hyper extremist attitude towards threats. You know, um, you know, we all have the experience of like, or maybe we don't all have the experience, but you all know what I mean when I say, you know, somebody goes out and gets wildly drunk and does stupid things, and the next morning wakes up and says, oh my God, that was such a mistake. Um, the United States did that after 9-11, did a lot of incredibly crazy things, from the security to the way we, you know, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, to, you know, forcing companies to corrupt their security systems to make it easy for the NSA, all sorts of insanity, which I think is in some human sense very understandable. You know, they were terrified, really terrified. But what we don't have is the kind of morning after yet. We don't yet have anybody who says, okay, look, that was all crazy. It was really crazy. And we just have to, you know, make amends and move forward. We still live in a time when our leaders are trying to embrace that same kind of craziness. So even Barack Obama, who you know, was a friend of mine when we taught at Chicago together, I supported him as a candidate, um, you know, came in and said he was gonna change everything. He got a Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> what was anybody thinking, right? He gets a Peace Prize because we think he is the great savior. He's going to change everything. He changes nothing except saying we will no longer torture and most of us wonder whether that statement actually has any relation to the truth. Um, this is a product of just the insanity of like a moment produced by the shock. Uh, and uh, we have a lot of work to do to work through that, to, to dial back the extremism. And the danger of that extremism is, you know, historically, people could resist extreme governments, you know, because at some point the governments gave in. But the United States government will not give in. You know, there's no, you know, the level of violence that was delivered against, you know, the Occupy people in Berkeley, for example, Oakland, um, was really astonishing to watch. And the fact that there was no reaction from the American public when that happened was even more terrifying to watch. So, you know, we've got a pathology about this that's going to take a long time to shake out. Um, and uh, my hope is that the issues I'm talking about, though they're connected, they're not the same. Like, you know, I think people like uh, Aaron and... Um, uh, um, Assange and uh, Edward Snowden and Brad and um, Chelsea Manning. Um, these are people who are doing things which did things and are doing things which ha have inspired a generation, no doubt. But for most Americans, they're not inspired. Um, even Edward Snowden, who is the most compelling possible um, whistleblower, uh, whose integrity as he, as he has manifested himself is really unquestioned. Um, has not yet convinced America. He's convinced, you know, my students and my friends and certain people in the civil rights tradition, but not America. Um, and so 
we can't wait for America to catch up on that dimension for us to fix this, because the reality is we don't have 50 years on the corruption problem to fix. And what you need to realize is you don't have 50 years for us to fix our problem. We will never pass climate change legislation until we solve this problem. It will never happen. People who talk as if it's going to happen are lying to you. Because just do, you just do the numbers, even Democrats, to the numbers necessary, will not pass climate change legislation because of their absolute capture by the interests that would resist it. So, you know, climate change is not an American problem. It's a world problem. And we are proportionally, incredibly uh, responsible for it. But we will not address it until we solve this problem. So people who look at America and think this is not your issue, this is your issue. This is your issue. If we don't solve this problem of our corruption, you don't solve your problem of climate change, period, because you can't solve it without us doing it. Um, so we have to find a way to address that problem more quickly than the 20 or 30 years it's going to take for America to finally come around to recognize that Snowden and Manning and Aaron and, um, and Julian Assange were onto something. You know, there was something they had to say. Um, and then, then they'll be accepted as part of American culture just like... Um, uh, other people from the 1960s are now accepted from American culture. Thank you so much for coming to me. You have been listening to Studentaftonpodden, a collaboration between Studentafton and Radio AF. More of our podcasts are available on iTunes and RadioAF.com.